0: Hello folks, my name is David and I am thrilled to welcome you to the first ever World Beyond the West podcast. The focus for audio log number one is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, the Russian leader who has been in power in one position or another since 1999, and is the chief architect of Europe's biggest armed conflict since the Second World War ended in 1945. He is an extremely cerebral, interesting, and perhaps misunderstood character who irrevocably altered the course of history when he ordered troops over the Ukrainian border on February 24th, setting off a chain of events which will reverberate throughout the world for years to come. With that in mind, I wanted to explore how Russia's president became the isolated, idealistic autocrat we see today, shed some light on the factors that play into his decision-making, and explain why it's most likely going to be very difficult to negotiate a peaceful end to the conflict. It is a pleasure to have you here, and I hope you enjoy the very first World Beyond the West podcast. Let's get stuck in! Vladimir Putin has been at the helm of power in Russia, either as President or Prime Minister, for more than two decades. In that time, he has cultivated an authoritarian regime in which legitimate opponents are persecuted and elections are convened only to highlight the absence of political alternatives. But for much of his reign, the man was seen as a keen, accomplished communicator who was intent on building and maintaining relations abroad. Putin was renowned for his willingness to discuss policy, both domestic and foreign, and was widely praised for his ability to intellectually spar with conversational adversaries. He was also recognized at least during his first two terms as president from 1999 to 2008 for opening up Russia's economy to western investors and seeking to establish good diplomatic ties with western powers. Until this year, Putin held an annual direct line event, a marathon Q&A session which saw him deliver lengthy answers to questions submitted by ordinary Russian citizens in the absence of notes or a teleprompter. He even penned an op-ed in 2013 which was published in The New York Times of all places. Nine years on, things have changed dramatically. I, for one, don't see Putin getting a thought piece published in one of America's largest newspapers anytime soon. Russia's leader has become isolationist and one-dimensional in his thinking. He makes sweeping decisions with little to no input from the Kremlin's elites, and since ordering troops across the Ukrainian border, has seemingly assumed the role of a modern-day Tsar, responsible for rebuilding the Russian Empire. But how did this come to be? Here, World Beyond the West takes a look at the factors which led Putin to cut himself off from the rest of the world in his pursuit of Ukraine, and why the chances of successfully negotiating a peaceful end to the war with the Russian autocrat are slim to none. The first factor is Putin's seeming obsession with Russian history, nationalism, and the concept of the Russian world. Putin's disdain for the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 is no secret, He once famously referred to its collapse as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But the Russian president is also a keen student of history, and is reported to be an avid reader of a particular set of Russian nationalist writers. His rhetoric is seemingly heavily influenced by the likes of Ivan Ilin and Alexander Dugin, political philosophers who expounded on the necessity for Russia to break free of the influence of Western liberalism and consolidate a traditional authoritarian state reinforced by a strict adherence to Christianity. Putin has made countless references to the concept of the Ruski Mir, or Russian world, during his time in power, particularly since returning to the presidency in 2012. According to the eponymous State Cultural Foundation, founded by Putin himself in 2007, the Russian world includes not only Russians, not only inhabitants of Russia, not only our fellow countrymen in foreign countries near and far, emigrants, expatriates, and their descendants. It also extends to foreign citizens who speak, learn, and teach Russian, and all people with a sincere interest in Russia and her future, and it is the state's job to promote this. In theory, a nation's desire to safeguard and celebrate its language and culture is a wholly positive notion, an endeavour that ought not be begrudged. But the concept of the Russian world, at least in Putin's mind, goes far beyond that. Practically, at least for Putin, establishing the Russian world seems to equate to an imperialist expansion of Russian territory and influence preventing the tide of Western liberal philosophy from rippling eastwards. In effect, he wants to restore the great empire of old, unifying a Russian-speaking tripartite, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, as well as other territories, including parts of Kazakhstan, Moldova, and Georgia, into a superstate which is linked by language, culture, and Russian Orthodox Christianity, which is impervious to the pull of the West. The Russo-Georgian War of 2008 was the first step towards rebuilding the Russian world, and occurred while Putin was serving as Russia's Prime Minister under Dmitry Medvedev. Russia effectively baited Georgia into a conflict with separatist forces in the regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which gave Moscow the green light to crush Georgian troops, and resulted in the Kremlin formally recognising both territories as independent. This set the precedent for Putin's annexation of Crimea and support for separatist movements in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Eight years later, the invasion of Ukraine began on February 24, 2022. It's one thing to negotiate a peace or a compromise with a man driven by greed or material gain. A man driven by deep-rooted principles and a profound belief in a greater ideal is another thing entirely. The second factor that made Putin the man he is today is his deep mistrust of the United States and NATO expansion. Putin grew up in the Soviet Union, rose through the ranks of the KGB during the height of the Cold War, and was trained in the art of secret keeping, subversion, and compromise. Given the trajectory of his upbringing and early career, it's hardly surprising that we haven't seen Putin strutting about the Red Square, dressed like Big Sam, and crooning the Star Spangled Banner, but in the early days of his presidency, there were high points in Moscow's relationship with the US. In the wake of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001, Putin and then U.S. President George W. Bush spoke of a new relationship for the 21st century, founded on commitment to the values of democracy, the free market, and the rule of law, which, at the time, was lauded as a major milestone for post-Cold War bilateral relations. And the relationship got off to a good start, too. Less than a year after 9-11, Putin and Bush pledged to form a united front against terror, while U.S. and Russian energy bosses convened for a joint summit in Houston, Texas, to identify barriers preventing investment and develop new business partnerships. There was even the creation of the NATO-Russia Council, which aimed to facilitate Moscow's interactions with the security bloc and help the parties work together on nuclear non-proliferation and military cooperation. Yet despite this promise, the relationship turned sour as the US set about demonstrating its apparent lack of understanding, or perhaps plain disregard, for Putin's security concerns and distaste for what the Kremlin saw as its penchant for regime change and the imposition of democracy. America's invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a source of great alarm for Putin. He saw a domineering White House intent on flexing its military muscles and unjustly interfering in the domestic affairs of a foreign nation, describing the invasion as a big mistake. The US support for the so-called colour revolutions which followed in Georgia, Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan in 2003-2005 only served to crystallise Putin's view of America as a dominant threat, and one which sought to destabilise the post-Soviet landscape along Russia's borders for its own political gain. By 2008, bilateral relations between the Kremlin and the White House were in tatters. The final straw was Bush's open declaration on April 1st, that he strongly supported the notion of Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO. Putin detested America's interventionist approach to the affairs of post-Soviet states, and what he saw as its insistence that NATO could be the only stable, legitimate security bloc in Eurasia. Though tensions cooled somewhat during the interlude in Putin's presidential terms, when Dmitry Medvedev and Barack Obama ascended to the presidency, the Kremlin's fear that it would become encircled by a powerful military conglomerate of which it was not a part never dissipated. The third and final factor that contributed to Putin's isolation that we'll look at today is, perhaps unsurprisingly, COVID-19. Though Russia has not imposed a ruthless zero-COVID policy like that of China's President Xi Jinping, Putin himself has been extremely cautious in his personal approach to the pandemic. He has, for the most part, locked himself away in any one of his sprawling personal residences, and anyone who wants to see him is subject to constant testing and quarantines prior to meeting. When he has stepped into the same room with other individuals, particularly foreign leaders, he has gone to great lengths, literally, to remain distance, often via a giant table which serves a symbolic purpose as much as it does a physical one. Now at age 70, and with speculation mounting over his declining health, the Russian president has seemingly doubled down and is scarcely seen in public. Fiona Hill, a former presidential adviser on Russia in the Bush, Obama and Trump administrations, concluded that Putin's enduring isolation has likely hardened his views, made it more difficult for his entourage to deliver a wide breadth of intelligence to him, and she also suggested that the Russian president could well be seeking and gathering information himself, which simply fits into his worldview and framework. Such imposed seclusion can only exacerbate the rigidity in Putin's thinking, eliminating what little chance he had of hearing opinions that challenge his own and those shared by his ideologues and yes-men. Long gone are the days of old when Reagan and Gorbachev sat across from each other and hashed out their roadmap out of the Cold War. Neither Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky nor US President Biden will be pulling up a chair beside Vladimir in the near future, and any attempts to negotiate will almost certainly only take place through a series of intermediaries. What all this means, then, is that the likelihood of a peaceful end to the conflict achieved through diplomacy in the coming months is effectively nil. Of course, not all wars end with a total devastation and unconditional surrender of one side or the other, but a Centre for Strategic and International Studies analysis of conflict resolution data since World War II found that only 24% of interstate wars like Ukraine that lasted between one month and one year end in a negotiated ceasefire. Wars that extend longer than a year typically drag out for more than a decade, devolving into a stalemate with continued sporadic clashes where talks fail to achieve lasting peace. Putin's so-called special military operation in Ukraine is well into its ninth month already, and with no signs of a ceasefire on the horizon, I fear the Russian president will continue to wage war for a long time to come. And that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. The very first World Beyond the West podcast is in the bank. Uh, I'd like to make a quick apology, actually, for the audio quality. Uh, Annoyingly, I had to record this one on the move, so the tone and the background noise was a bit inconsistent. Uh, Fortunately, it will be nice and cosy behind the mic for upcoming episodes, so your ears will be treated more delicately moving forward. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you would like to subscribe and share the World Beyond the West podcast with someone you think might like it, I certainly won't complain. For those listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can also find the World Beyond the West content in written form on Substack go to wbtw.substack.com That is wbtw.substack.com and simply pop your email in to sign up for the newsletter. Alternatively, you can search World Beyond the West on the Substack website or app for a Kushier reading experience. That's all for today. All the best for the week ahead and I'll have more for you soon. See ya!